0: So I just need you all to know, Marquita flew to L.A. and back on Friday. She needed to be at a a funeral, right? But she did that in order to be back today to lead worship. So I want to honor her and thank her this morning. Come on, come on. Thank you, Marquita, and thank you, worship team, for leading us well, uh, very, very well today. If you can, uh, open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19 will be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Matthew is in the New Testament, so it's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Uh, and actually, I'm going to invite Jane Lee to come up and read our scripture this morning. As she comes with the rest of you, please uh, stand where you are, if you're able. Reading of God's word.
1: For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the the disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should the one who can accept this should accept this. This is the word of God.
0: Thank you, Jane. You can be seated. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we ask that you now would uh, be our teacher, that you would be the one who uh, takes these pages and, through the uh, power of your Holy Spirit, makes uh, this passage for us uh, words of life, uh, the active and living uh, Word of God. We ask that you would um, uh, humble each of us, even as you encourage us today, uh, that you would help us know and see and imagine. How better to live within the kingdom of God that you have promised uh, each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One last announcement. Um, We're doing a membership class. Uh, I can't remember the date. I think it's in your bulletin. There's three slots uh, open still for that. So if you're interested in becoming member, uh, there's a sign-up. Thank you. Chris has got it in the back there. It'll be at the table. Even if you're not interested in becoming a member quite yet, but you want to learn more about the church, the membership class is a great, uh, a great starting point for that. Uh, today we get, uh, begin a new sermon series about the kingdom of God, three weeks uh, on the kingdom of God. We're going to take a, a different topic uh, each, uh, each week. Uh, maybe middle of last month or so, one of, my, um, one of the people I most look up to, uh, uh, Michelle Alexander, you guys know Michelle Alexander, uh, off new Jim Crow? Uh, She posted on her Facebook page. She says, as a lawyer, it comes naturally for me to speak only when I've done all my research, know all the facts, and can make the case. Yet now I feel compelled to change course. I'm walking away from the law. I've resigned my position as a law professor at Ohio State University, and I've decided to teach and study at a seminary. Why? I no longer believe we can win justice simply by filing lawsuits flexing our political muscles, or boosting voter turnout. Yes, we absolutely must do all that work. But none of it, not even working for some form of political revolution, will ever be enough on its own. Without a moral or spiritual awakening, we will remain forever trapped in political games, fueled by fear, greed, and hunger for power. Actually, remember, it reminds me of some of the things you've said to me, Mama Regina. What I understand... Uh, Michelle Alexander to basically be saying here is that uh, she's come to a point where she realizes that that true, genuine, lasting, systemic change has to come from outside of ourselves. It's not something that we can uh, work hard enough on our own. Our need is beyond our capacity to fix it. I thought of, of her words as I began preparing for this sermon series, and I started reflecting on what will be our key verse for the next three weeks from John 18 and 36. Jesus has been arrested. He's standing before um, the most powerful person he's ever uh, met in his life, uh, the, the governor Pilate, the Roman governor Pilate. And Pilate is questioning him. He's on, uh, on trial. And Jesus, at, at some point in this interrogation, he, he tells Pilate in verse 36 of John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, some have heard those words, and imagine that Jesus was saying that the kingdom of God has has really nothing to do with our life on earth. That The kingdom of God is out there. It's in heaven. We'll experience it one day when we have died and gone to heaven, or we'll experience it one day when Jesus has returned and made all Things right. But this cannot be what Jesus is saying when he says, My kingdom is not of this world. For one thing, the context, his disciples are all around him. This is a a very specific, tangible, physical situation that Jesus is talking about here. And as we saw over and over again in our uh, long study of the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is near, it's here, it's available to us right now. It's not come fully. God's enemies still wreak havoc in our lives and in this world before their final demise. But Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have ensured that God's kingdom has been brought near and that we have access to the blessed life within the kingdom of God. Amen? So so it it can't be when Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this earth that, that he means that it's just out there for us to experience one day, Jesus isn't telling Pilate about an invisible someday kingdom. However, this verse shows us something very important about the kingdom of God. While this kingdom has broken into our world, while the kingdom of God is available to every single one of us through Jesus, the kingdom of God is fundamentally different than this world. One commentator says it this way, the kingdom of God does not take its origin from this world. The kingdom of God is not of this world. To me, that sounds a little bit like the reality Michelle Alexander is wrestling with. That our rescue, our our salvation must come from outside of ourselves. It cannot be of this world. So this is good, I think, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is not of this world. That's something we need. We need our salvation to come from outside of ourselves. But this reality of the kingdom not being of this world is also necessarily very difficult for those of us who have been so thoroughly shaped by this world. It's good news that the kingdom is not of this world, but it's hard news because you and I have been shaped by this world. As people created in God's image, you and I have been made for life with God. But in a world that bends itself away from God, and you only needed to watch the news once this week, to watch our world bend itself away from God, we struggle to know how to live within the kingdom of God. And because our desires and our assumptions have been shaped by a rebellious world, the way of life within God's kingdom will not always seem normal to us. And it will not even always seem good to us. To put it very simply, what's best for us will not always seem good for us. It's kind of like visiting another country. Where initially the, the customs and the food and the language are interesting. They're different. It's a fun adventure and it's a kind of cross-cultural experience to have. And then a week goes by. And then a month goes by. And now it's not really interesting anymore. It just seems wrong. (laughs) Haven't they figured out how to? How come they don't do it like? Why do they think so radically different about time then? This is a little bit our experience of the kingdom of God. Because we have been so thoroughly shaped by this world God's kingdom that is not of this world will not always seem normal or even good initially to us. Are you with me so far? I'll tell you, I'll admit to you that this has been very true for me as I have thought through each of the three sermons in this series. I have fought with these sermons. They have not felt like a good fit at times. I have come up with alternative suggestions for Jesus about how his kingdom should be oriented. This is our dilemma. Jesus has made the abundant eternal life within God's kingdom available to us today. But our formation by this world means that we will sometime reject that kingdom because it's not from our world. Because it doesn't align with our expectations and our assumptions about what is best for us. What does this mean? It means that if we are to accept Jesus' invitation to life within the kingdom of God, we need to nurture a healthy skepticism about our own expectations and assumptions. We must at least question our initial pushback to the radically different way of life Jesus describes within his kingdom. Are you still with me? It's the same thing as being in a multi-ethnic church, right? At some point, something in our church will strike you as so different as like, that, that's just not how you do it. That's wrong. To be a, a healthy member of a multi-ethnic community means that you need to nurture a healthy skepticism of your instincts. Are you still with me? Uh, This is what I hope we can do for the next three weeks. As we take uh, three of our society's most uh, potent concerns in sex, in money, and in power, and we hold them up to the kingdom of God, we should feel uncomfortable at times It's a sign that we're on the right track. We should, if I can push it a little bit farther, we should, over the next few weeks, even question the teaching and the example of Jesus around these three themes. That will mean we're on the right track. That The kingdom that we are encountering is not of this world. This cannot be a comprehensive look at all three of these topics, but hopefully it'll be deep enough for us to examine our own assumptions and expectations about life within the kingdom of God. At the very beginning of both Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, we find Jesus saying to his first and earliest followers, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in that short statement, are two very important assumptions that I want us to keep in mind as we move forward. First, that entering the kingdom of God requires that we turn away from certain assumptions, expectations, and desires to which we have become accustomed. Repenting into necessarily means turning away from. Are you with me? And that's the hard part. But the second assumption is this. That repenting into the kingdom of God is worth it. That the kingdom of God is better than anything that this world has formed us to want or desire. Amen? Amen? Let's proceed with then these two assumptions in mind. And we're going to just jump right into it. What can we learn about sex within the kingdom of God from Jesus? It's going to be a little bit of a longer sermon, but it's about sex. So I think you can stay awake. What can we learn about sex within the kingdom of God from Jesus? First, Jesus, we're just going to jump right in. Jesus teaches that sexual intercourse was created for covenant marriage. This is not going to be one of those sermons where I ask you to repeat back things that I say to you. The context of our passage here is that the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to step into uh, an ongoing religious debate related to divorce. There are different schools of thought among the Jewish leaders at this time about uh, what would allow a a husband to divorce his wife. And you have some who would say, well, there's only a few reasons why a, a husband can divorce his wife. And then you have another school of thought that would say, really, for any reason, a husband can divorce his wife. doesn't really go the other way, not surprisingly. And so they're trying to get Jesus to weigh in on this topic. And uh, one of the most frustrating things about Jesus, if you've not encountered this already, is he, he's kind of like a politician. He's like, ah, I don't really want to talk about that. Here's what we're going to talk about instead. He doesn't answer the question about divorce. Instead, he in, enlarges the conversation to, to sort of include all uh, of, of marriage and, uh, and sex. And, uh, and so for Jesus, the key move is to go back to the creation story in Genesis. He doesn't a- appeal to laws. He doesn't appeal to tradition. He goes back to Genesis. For Jesus, questions about sex and sexuality are questions about God's intentions for his most beloved creatures, us. And this is very important. For Jesus, sexuality is not trivial. It's not subject to the whims of the Pharisees' debates. Sex is rooted in our status as image bearers of God. Another way to say this would be that sexual intercourse is about how women and men reflect the image of God. If that seems too deep, sorry. This is the move that Jesus makes. He goes right back to the creation story. Which is why, then, that Christians are called to think carefully and to engage very thoughtfully about sex. <laughs> that can get weird in a hurry. And some of you have been in situations where it's like, hey, do we talk about anything besides sex? You know, like... So this is not the idea. We don't get obsessed with the topic of sex, but we think carefully and thoughtfully about it. For Jesus, there is divine intention and purpose behind our sexuality. He calls us away from the pharisaical tendencies to subject our sexuality to the ideological whims of today and instead to look to our Creator, to God's plans for our sexuality, plans that, as our passage shows will often be a very poor fit for the cultural assumptions of any given moment in time. By going back to creation, we see some key things about God's intentions for sex. For example, we see that sex takes place after a change in relational orientation. So God commands the man to leave his family and to be united with his wife. Parenthetically, right from the very beginning of the Bible, we see a move that pushes against sort of the patriarchal assumptions of, well, not just that culture, but ours too, right? Who's commanded by God? It's not a trick question. The man, right? The man is told, he's the one who is commanded, that was not normal. Usually the woman would have been commanded. And the man is the one who is told to leave where he's from, his family, and to cleave to his wife. So some theologians will say it right from the beginning. We need to sort of be checked in some of our sort of patriarchal assumptions about how these things work. So sex takes place after a change in relational orientation. Another thing we see in Genesis is that sex takes place after a God-ordained covenant is made to one another. Now, here's what one theologian says, Marva Dawn. I think we have this, uh, Jane, to put up. Marva Dawn says, only then, reflecting on the creation narrative, only then do the man and woman become one flesh. This name for sexual union is especially important for it indicates the profound mystery of, in God's design for human sexuality. Sexual union creates a uniquely comprehensive bond. God's intentions for us, for his image-bearing creatures, reveal that sex is to be a symbol and a sign of God's covenant love for us, for the world sexual expression in marriage points beyond the spouses to the God who called us out of our orientation of sin and into his eternal and covenant love. This is a theme throughout the scripture. Paul picks it up in his letter to the church in Ephesus where he's reflecting on the exact same passages and says this is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. A profound mystery, the way in which sex within marriage points beyond itself to God's love for all of creation. For Jesus, sex is an extension of our identities as image bearers of God, and our expression of sex within covenant marriage points to the eternal relationship made available to us with God through Jesus. As kind of as a, as a side note here, there can be a tendency for us to think, and this is something I've, uh, I've thought myself and I've engaged in conversations about this, there can be a tendency for us to think that this sexual ethic that Jesus is describing is a product of one uh, particularly ancient time period. A common critique that I've heard, maybe you have as well, of Jesus' teaching about sex is that maybe it made sense back then. Maybe it made sense back in, this is a fun, this is an interesting one. Maybe it made sense back in first century Palestine or in 19th century America. As if there was a lot in common between those two times. But okay, we'll <laughs> leave that aside. Maybe back then it made sense, but we are different. Like our times are different. Our technologies are different. Our cultural assumptions are different, and so it doesn't really uh, land so well for us today. I get that tendency. I understand that critique. But I just for a moment want you to notice how the Pharisees and the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching about sex. Do they go, oh, yeah, totally, that's what, that's what I thought oh yeah, that confirms sort of all all my current ways of thinking about sex and sexuality. I can just keep on sort of living the way I have been living. (laughs) I would suggest to you that's not their response. Their response is one of questioning both the disciples and the Pharisees. And I think you can pick up notes of incredulity. I think the disciples are actually very sarcastic in their response to Jesus. (laughs) Point being that Jesus' sexual ethic was deeply countercultural in his day. And so we should expect it to be challenging for us in our day as well. Maybe in different ways. Um, but let's just, let's not make this too easy on the disciples. It was hard for them too. Uh, on the positive side, when, when you or I encounter a hard teaching from Jesus as it relates to our sexuality and our tendency is to go, yeah, 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 yeah but, 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 what about, but I don't know, or huh? You're in good company. This is what Jesus' disciples have been doing since the beginning, okay? This is what we do. We wrestle with Jesus' heart teaching. Amen? All right, good. Now, there's a whole lot more that could be said underneath this first point about sexual intercourse uh, within marriage. We could talk about sort of the importance of embodied intimacy and sacrificial love uh, in marriage. We could talk about the inseparable connection between sex and bearing children and how that connection has been radically kind of frayed uh, in in current or more recent generations. We could talk about the realities of disabilities and disease and how this can remove the possibility of sexual intimacy in marriage. And so what are the repercussions there? So there's there's a ton of things we could talk about here, but we don't have time. But there is is one thing that Jesus actually kind of calls out explicitly, so I think it's very important for us to, to notice. In verse 10... After hearing kind of Jesus' very high expectations about sex, again, I think sarcastically, the disciples respond. And they say, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. So they're, it's like, it's like they're being sarcastic, right? And Jesus is like, no, okay, let's go there. Let's talk about that. He says, not everyone can accept this word. Okay. Sorry, nothing to do with anything here. I just, I love that about Jesus, right? Because the disciples are like, well, me just, huh, huh, you know, and then Jesus is like, not everyone can accept that word. And they're like, what word? We were just being like, we're just playing, you know, and she's like, no, you're, you're saying something true and important that we're going to, that we're going to talk about. There's more here than even you are aware of, he says to the disciples. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So despite their sarcasm, Jesus takes them very seriously, which shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is single and Jesus is not married, right? So it's sort of like Jesus is like, hey, but you do realize you're talking about me, Right? not theoretical for me like this is a, this is me you're talking about in your sarcastic response so jesus takes it seriously he picks this up and and he and, and jesus using the language of eunuch he jesus says look there there are some who have been born biologically unable to engage in sexual relationship some have been born this way jesus says so then there are others who have been made eunuchs this would have been Not a super common practice, but a thing that would have been done to some slaves would have been castrated in order that they could have served their masters in ways that were more sort of acceptable and appropriate. So Jesus says, some have been made unable to to, to have sex because of violent acts against them, committed against them. Some have suffered a profound injustice that keeps them from being able to, to engage sexually. And then Jesus says, and then there's people like me, who for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of God's gospel call, live as if I were uh, a eunuch. Um, there's a couple things for us to notice before we move on here. And again, I want you to remember, Jesus makes this move intentionally. He didn't have to talk about this, right? The disciples could have made their sarcastic remark, and Jesus, and they could have moved on. But Jesus said, no, we're going to stop, and we're going to talk about this. First thing for us to notice is that Jesus elevates those who have been sexually marginalized by virtue of either their birth or by violence that has been done against them. Jesus stops everything, and he he elevates. He lifts up. He humanizes. Are you with me? And the second thing he does is that he identifies a celibate singleness alongside marriage as a call from God that exists for the good of the kingdom of God. I would say, in other words, that Jesus does in this moment exactly the opposite of what many of our churches do. Many of our churches, when we elevate sexual intimacy within marriage as the expected goal for everybody, do you know you've arrived when? Jesus does the opposite of this. He almost flips that on its head. Ours is a culture that assumes that sexual intercourse is necessary for genuine human happiness. And not just sex, but a very, if sort of like the Hollywood picture is to be believed, a very particular kind of sex that is glamorous and apparently amazing all the time. You, you, right? You with me? You with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Come up with your recommendations of movies that have, like, boring sex in them. Like, tell me, and I'll share those with you later. right? Uh, the not-so-subtle assumption, cultural assumption, is that those who are not having sex cannot be truly happy. And I would say even more than that, that sort of underlying this cultural assumption is that those who are not having sex are not actually truly and fully human. Those who are uh, celibate Either the virtue of biology, psychology, uh, or choice, uh, literally become invisible in our culture's expressions of sexuality. When was, if you, if you are a, a single person living an intentionally celibate life, come up afterwards and tell me when was the last time you saw yourself portrayed with, with kindness and dignity in our media? I'd love to know. I couldn't think of any example. But those individuals, and you if you are in this category, are not invisible to Jesus. He intentionally and deliberately steers the conversation to those who are celibate, and in doing so, he affirms their full humanity. Women and men who know the joys and struggles of their particular experience of sexuality. I remember having a conversation a few years ago. Uh, with a woman who has experienced great abuse at the hands of men in her life, including sexual abuse. And I I remember sort of the, the relief in her face as she began to come to grips that to be fully human, she didn't have to get married. That she never had to have sex. That she could live as a celibate single woman and be fully human fully seen, fully accepted, fully loved. If she never came to a place in her life where she felt safe uh, to be in a sexual relationship, that that would be okay. She would still be loved and seen and valued and fully who God intended her to be. And the relief in her face was palpable because she had not seen that held up as a legitimate option for her in our culture or in the church. What can we learn about sex within the kingdom of God from Jesus? Well, here's the second thing. Jesus demonstrates scandalous grace to sexually compromised people. Jesus demonstrates scandalous grace to sexually compromised people. Both the Pharisees and the disciples, they come to this conversation about sex thinking that they are, They are good. They're okay. If anyone has a problem about sex, it's not them. If anyone is sinning sexually, it's not them. They're good. Someone else's problem. But then Jesus starts talking, and all of a sudden, the sexual morality police start getting very nervous. And it's not just here that Jesus does this. In his Sermon on the Mount, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus enlarges the definition of adultery to include the attitudes of our hearts. Additionally, he takes on the common practice of men divorcing their wives for any reason, and he calls them abusers and adulterers. Jesus makes it very plain. Every single one of us has in some way been sexually compromised. Within a world that makes sex both an idol and a weapon, none of us have escaped unscathed. And if we look closely at the social dynamics that Jesus was interacting with, we'd have to say, I think, that those who felt most normal in their sexuality, who felt most sexually self-righteous in how they viewed others' sexual sins, that these were the people who were most implicated in Jesus' teaching. All of this, I think, makes Jesus' actual interactions with sexually compromised people like us, puzzling. Quick um, commercial break. Jeannie Yee has created a very good uh, community group curriculum around a totally different uh, uh, passage of scripture where I think this particular uh, theme is going to give you, uh, it's going to help you dig into it a little bit more. So plug for community groups, and thank you to Jeannie. Okay, so what I was saying, Jesus' uh, 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 sort of teaching about the place of sex and then his, his interactions with sexually compromised people with us can, can make for sort of a puzzling situation. Because despite the, the very clear sexual ethic from creation through the Gospels, all of Jesus' interaction with sep- sexually compromised people are characterized by scandalous grace. Now, this was especially true for those in that culture who were most susceptible to abuse and sexual manipulation. And so we repeatedly in the Gospels see Jesus approached by women whose poverty, whose isolation had likely made them susceptible to prostitution, to abuse, or in the case of the Samaritan woman at the well, to serial monogamy, monogamy, being passed from one man to the next. In other words... Those who had been made to feel the most shame about their sexuality were the ones who were most drawn to Jesus and to his grace. And this was very literally scandalous. The Pharisees in Matthew 19 and 11, they come to Jesus' disciples. They're watching who Jesus is spending time with and who's spending time with him. And they ask him, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and, quote, sinners? Jesus' reputation was slandered by the religious leaders because of the grace and humanity he showed to those who had been maligned and excluded by those very same religious leaders. What do we do with this? How do we engage with the one who makes very clear God's specific, particular intention for sex and at the same time demonstrates scandalous grace to every single one of us who lives outside of those intentions, which, by the way, is every single one of us in the room. What do we do with this? Here's what we do. We choose to allow God's scandalous grace to transform our own hearts. We choose to allow God's scandalous grace to transform our own hearts. Why? Because when it comes to our sexually compromised selves and the creator of our sexuality, we have one of two choices. We can be like the Pharisees who, who from our perch of sexual self-righteousness, look down on others. Or we can be like the many women who had been made to feel great shame and draw near to Jesus. In the end, the Pharisees are the ones who opposed Jesus. The women, on the other hand, found their humanity affirmed, their agency expand, their sins forgiven, and their wounds healed. The Pharisees mock this humble king and his kingdom. The women worship the king. and They become ambassadors of the kingdom, representatives and the first apostles of the kingdom of God. What do we do with the seemingly impossible sexual ethic of the kingdom of God and the literally endless grace of its king? We choose to allow God's grace to transform our own hearts. What does that mean? Those of us who have known the abuse of this patriarchal and sexually violent country can join the many others over the centuries who have drawn near to Jesus and find grace. Grace that tells the truth about the wickedness that has been done to us and grace that heals our deepest pain. Those of us who have been maligned and isolated by today's version of the sexually self-righteous Pharisees can draw near to Jesus, and find a grace that dignifies and humanizes. Those of us whose exposure to churches and communities that fixated only on certain aspects of sexuality, that made women objects of purity to be sealed away in bubbles of modesty and submission, that narrowed definitions of manhood to barely controlled violence and lust, Those of us who come from these communities and are ready to leave behind any biblical teaching about sex that reminds us of those places, we can draw near to Jesus, and to a grace that purifies, that burns away the chaff of manipulative power. Those of us who this morning know our sexual sin, our sexual adultery, addiction, dysfunction, our sexual narcissism, we can draw near to Jesus and to a grace that drives our shame from the room, that makes our freedom a reality into which we can live for the rest of our lives. What can we learn about sex within the kingdom of God from Jesus? He teaches that sexual intercourse was created for covenant marriage, and he demonstrates scandalous grace to sexually compromised people. Now, of these first two answers, if I were to guess, I would say that that it's the first that would seem the hardest to most of us today. Jesus' understanding of sexual intercourse. I want to suggest that if we're paying attention. The second answer should be the harder one for us today. Because in the first, we can simply choose to agree or disagree. I agree with Jesus about where what sex is for, or I disagree with him. Fine. It doesn't cost us a whole lot. I think the second answer about his scandalous grace can be far more costly for us. The second answer requires that whatever our sexual histories, whatever our pains and grief, whatever our sins and addictions, whatever our frustrations and disagreements with Jesus, we still understand the call to draw near to him and to his grace. This grace is scandalous because it welcomes those we assume should be excluded. Excluded. If it's Jesus' grace we're talking about, then when you look up and see her there, you should go, What? And you see him there, you should go, What? Then we know it's the grace of God that we're talking about. Amen? Because guess what? Someone's going to look up and see you and go, What? This grace is scandalous because it requires our personal, ongoing confession of our deep need for God's grace and mercy. And this grace is scandalous because it asked the disciples then and it asks us today to trust in the goodness of the kingdom of God even when it undermines the cultural assumptions and expectations we've taken for granted. There's one more way I want to answer This question, what can we learn about sex within the kingdom of God? And this one may be the most challenging for me personally. Jesus assumes that human sexuality will be expressed socially for everyone's good. I'm kind of hoping that doesn't make sense to you. I'm still struggling to make sense of it for myself. There's some good reasons for this. I want to suggest two reasons why this sentence should strike us as borderline absurd. And here I'm drawing from the work of anthropologist Janelle Williams Paris and the theologian I mentioned before, Marva Dawn. The first uh, thing that makes this sentence uh, weird to us has to do with the way we think about sexual identity. The ways in which we talk about sexual identity today are actually. A relatively new. You, you start to begin to see words like heterosexual and homosexual in medical literature in the 1920s and the 1930s. The language and sort of the concept itself doesn't really enter into popular American consciousness until the 1950s and 60s. This does not mean that before the 1920s there were not straight people and gay people and bisexual people. Clearly there were. It just means that the way we think about it and talk about it is actually relatively new to us. Does that make sense? Okay. This is going somewhere, I promise, I promise, I promise. So, so now, for us, sexual identity is thought of as an essential identity within an individual that, quote, is expected to provide personal identity and happiness. That is to say, you and I build significant, even primary identities around who we desire to have sexual intercourse with. Parenthetically, if you are straight, if you are heterosexual, then what you and I need to understand is that this terminology and this way of thinking about sexual identity in part, at least, is developed as a way of marginalizing same-sex attracted people. When this language and these concepts are first developed, it is first used to oppress and to marginalize same-sex attracted people. Are you with me? Do with that what you will, but just think carefully about how we use this language and terminology and how it was originally used. Okay? So when we think about our sexuality... We've been culturally formed to think mostly about who we desire to have sex with, and we think of that as a, as a kind of innate, internal, very uh, a significant, maybe primary source of our identity. That's the first challenge to the sentence you see on the screen. The second challenge is the way in which our technologies push us from one another. So this gets at why that phrase social sexuality like, is like, well, what, what? The way our technologies, so you don't have to be a luddite, you don't have to like hate technology, right? To to admit that that our technologies can contribute to our to our isolation, amen. So if you're in a if you're in a waiting room at an airport, what are most people doing? Right. There's, so there's apps for iPads designed for younger and younger age children. I'm not an expert on this. Maybe they're good. Maybe they're healthy. But what we do know is that our children at younger and younger ages are sort of being taught to be in front of a screen, to learn from a screen, which, again, maybe is helpful. But what is the repercussion of that? Less and less time with peers, with adults, with parents, with grandparents. Or do you think really big picture, think about our highway system and our relatively inexpensive oil that allows you and I to live a long way away from where we work where we go to church, where we buy our groceries, where we recreate. What does that mean? It means that we don't kind of live sort of integrated lives of, of work and play and family and worship in the way that people in previous generations would have. Our technologies, I have a phone. It's not in my pocket, right? So I'm not, but our technologies in many ways serve to push us away from each other. Are you with me? Okay. Uh, so this is how Marva Don talks about technology. Our technological toys and propaganda control us. They pull us away from each other, make us less inclined to participate with the group, cause us to be less capable of interactions with others. Similarly, our technological tools decrease our skills for intimacy. Okay, so you put these two together, these two cultural forces. Narrowly defined sexual identity and isolating technologies. Take these two together, and all of a sudden, the idea of socially expressed human sexuality is a very hard concept for us to get our heads around. But I want to say that this is exactly how Jesus assumes that our sexual identities will be expressed, is in healthy, socially sexual ways. So again, going back to Marvadon, just to fill this in a little bit. Our social sexuality is composed of all aspects of our being that are distinct from specific feelings, attitudes, or behaviors related or leading to genital union. Now I've used the word genital in this sermon, too. It's almost done. We can do this. When I speak to you, I do not do so as a neuter. I relate to you as a woman with my particular body and spirit and mind, with my whole self, which has discovered its identity within the framework of my being female. How I relate to everyone else in the world and every kind of human interaction depends upon the way in which my social sexuality has been formed. Nod your head if you're at least sort of tracking at this point. within a culture that reduces our sexualities to the object of our sexual affection, and that increasingly increasingly reduces relational community and meaningful friendships through our isolating technologies, social sexuality is increasingly hard for us to understand. And as our experience of social sexuality decreases, we become more susceptible to the shallow and selfish expectations of our sexually idolatrous culture. This is a poor reflection of sexuality within the kingdom of God. and We know this by simply looking at Jesus' life. A celibate single man who nonetheless had a sexuality While Jesus teaches about the place of sexual intercourse, his example, his way of living, builds a community in which social sexuality is nurtured for everyone's good. Women and men make up Jesus' followers. Married men and single women, single women and married men, all make up Jesus' initial community of followers. And in his day, that expression of healthy social sexuality would have pushed against all sorts of cultural norms. Norms that separated women from men, especially unmarried women from men. In our day, healthy social sexuality pushes against our technological isolation and our reductionist views of our sexual identities. With this in mind, one of the best things a church can do for healthy sexuality seems on the surface to have nothing to do with sex. Rather than trying to Christianize our isolating and sexually shallow culture, okay, just for a second, I just vent for a minute. Drives me crazy when, when when churches and pastors sort of sort of take the cultural assumptions about sex and then try to use them to build their church. So you uh, maybe don't reckon, don't record this part. So there was a church, right? <laughs> there was a church in Texas a while ago that like challenged. The, 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 the married couples in the church to have sex for 40 days in a row. Anybody hear about this? Now just think for a minute about all of the assumptions that have to rest underneath that for anyone to go, you know what would be a good idea? And guess what? Tons of press. Tons of people want to come and visit this church. This is true. It's actually happening. The pastor, you know, we got pastors in our city who like camp out on top of buildings because they're trying to fight gangs and, the other, you know, at you know. this church, this is, I'm not even lying. You can look this up. The pastor and his wife, like they went up on the church and they had a bed set up for them on top of the church and they like stayed up there for I don't know, like a week or something like that, right, to sort of be the example and fill in the blanks, okay? It's never going to happen here, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> But there's a way in which we can sort of try to just Christianize sort of the the assumptions of our culture, kind of put spiritual band-aids over them as a way of like meeting the quote-unquote felt needs. Or we can try, without disengaging from our culture, we can try to ask hard questions about Jesus' intentions and desires for us in this time and place. Jesus didn't try to Christianize the Roman Empire. Jesus didn't try to Christianize the Pharisees and their assumptions. He articulated something radically different. Okay, so are you, it's okay? It's okay, you start recording again. Okay, okay. That was not in the notes. Okay, what were we talking about before? Yeah, thank you. That doesn't help me at all, Stephen, not even a little bit. Okay, here we go, here we go. Rather than trying to Christianize our isolating and sexually shallow culture, our efforts, I would say our efforts together, every single one of us in this room, are far better spent following Jesus' example of building community that is safe and holy. Our time is much better spent building a community that is hospitable to everyone. And that takes every one of us deep. A community that is honest about the truth of the gospel and the scandalous grace that should make every one of us uncomfortable. The community of Jesus is one that expects each of us to come into this room as sexual creatures, as those whose sexualities reflect both God's Image as well as the compromises we've experienced in this rebellious world. Our community should reflect a people who are wrestling with the call to marriage and the call to singleness with equal sincerity and seriousness. A community who comes to the cross and lays our sexual sins at the foot of the cross, along with every other instance of idolatry and injustice. Our efforts are best spent building a community of people who are learning very slowly, perhaps, to trust the god who included sexuality within our identities. That this God is good. And that his not-of-this-world kingdom exhibits the best for our sexual flourishing. What can sex teach us about the kingdom of God? In the kingdom of God, our sexualities find social expression for one another's good. In the kingdom of God, we encounter the scandalous and endless grace of God for our compromised sexualities. And in the kingdom of God, we find that sex and our sexualities point beyond ourselves to the God for whom we have been made. Anglican theologian Sarah Coakley writes, we need to understand sex as really about God about the deep desire that we feel for God, the precious clue that is woven into our existence about the final, ultimate union we seek. So let us step in faith toward this God and toward union with him. Let us trust, however haltingly, in his goodness, entrusting the tangle of our sexual selves to the one in whom all desires will ultimately be satisfied. Amen. aware that in a sermon like this, different ones of us hear different things, different questions are raised, different memories are pricked, different anxieties are are provoked. Just maybe take the next minute and quiet and bring those before our God. Ask that each of us would hear uh, the truth and the grace that we need to hear today. Lord, in, in some rather sort of blunt ways, we were reminded this week that we live in a we live in a country where sexuality is not, um, it's not neutral, and it's not always safe. So this morning, uh, together we, we pray for each one among us who has experienced um, any sort of, um, of abuse, neglect, manipulation, shaming. Anyone who in this incredibly important and um, image of God reflecting part of our humanity has been wounded, we ask for your mercy and your grace, as Pastor Michelle prayed for us earlier, that there would be renewed healing even today. That the grace that we encountered in your word would be a healing and a powerful grace today. We pray that you would be fashioning uh, us into a community of people that can grow into our own uh, sexuality in ways that are uh, life-giving and affirming, and that stand counter to the, the shallow and selfish ways our, our culture has described us. We pray. Um, And we ask that you'd help us to repent, Lord, from uh, any of the uh, the, the, the subtle decisions or or the big decisions that we've made that are pushing us away from one another, that are pushing us into isolation. We ask that you would call us out and bring us back. Holy Spirit, I'm that for different reasons, um, each of us have our skepticisms about the goodness of the life you have called us to. We pray that we would uh, acknowledge those and not pretend that they aren't true, but God, that you would teach us to trust, that you would remind us what you have done for us, that you would remind us of who you, our creator, are that you would continue to invite us deeper and deeper into the kingdom that you have brought near through Jesus. God, I pray for marriages right now and ask that they would be, uh, for us, a signposts to the covenant love that God has for his world. We ask those of us who are married, we ask for forgiveness for the ways that we have made uh, sexual expression within our marriage to be mostly just about us, mostly just a, 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 um, a, a, an endeavor that doesn't in some way uh, intersect with the rest of our faith and place in this community. God, would you knit us together into one flesh in our marriages, that our marriages would be um, uh, hospitable, that they would be sacrificial, that they would demonstrate a kind of self-giving love that at least begins to hint at what we see in Jesus. God, with equal uh, sincerity, we ask for uh, the single women and men uh, who lead and serve in our community. God, we ask that there would be an affirmation that can only come from you, of their identities, of the ways in which you see and love and value them. God, I pray very particularly now for each single person who has heard so many times in blatant or subtle ways that somehow um, their life matters less because of their singleness. Um, I I ask your forgiveness on behalf of preachers and pastors who have said those kinds of things and any ways that our church has ever slid into those sorts of directions. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would um, tell a different story, the story that we saw today in your gospel. I pray that you would remind each uh, single woman and man who makes up this body that their place, that their sexuality, that their call among us uh, is vital and essential, that we simply could not be who we are without their presence And the gifts that you have given them. And so we ask uh, finally, Lord, for any of our unanswered uh, questions, for the tangents that begin to open up in our minds. God, would you keep teaching us? Would you keep uh, leading us? Would you keep shepherding us towards your truth? Let this be a safe and holy community. A community where healing happens, where truth is spoken, but but most of all, God, where your grace uh, becomes scandalous to us and to our neighbors, the gospel of Jesus Christ in and of itself, because of its grace, is a stumbling block. We'd like to be that kind of stumbling block. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll receive the offering now. I want to say uh, about our offering, though, and Pastor Michelle prayed about this as well, uh, the need in Haiti is really great right now. Our denomination has a relief and development arm called Covenant World Relief. If you can only give one place today, don't give here please give to the relief efforts in Haiti. The need there is greater than the need here. You can visit the denomination's website, which is covchurch.org. And uh, they are partnered with Haitian-led organizations, um, including, I think, uh, World Relief. So let's pray. God, please now take this uh, offering, whether we give here, whether we give to the, uh, the efforts... Bring some measure of mercy and relief in Haiti. And uh, please use them for your purposes and your good. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you can, we'll receive that now. You can drop your welcome cards and prayer cards in there as well. Were the uh, t shirt announcements in your bulletin today? The sign up cards, were they in your bulletin today? They're in the back, okay? So uh, if you didn't fill one out, it's okay. On the way out. Um, or, you know, maybe what we'll do is we'll bring them for during the meeting afterwards, and we can pass those around. Um, As Pastor Michelle said, you can call uh, Crystal this week, or you can email her if you aren't able to fill them out today. If you can't pay for them today, that's okay. Still fill them out. And again, buy as many as you can. This is a fundraiser uh, for this family in our neighborhood. Um, So just two last things, and then uh, the benediction. Uh, Three last things. One, stick around for our conversation about our strategic plan. Uh, two, if you're not in a community group, again, I already pitched it. I'll pitch it again. Yee's written a great curriculum. Um, so grab, Is one still here. One's in the back. Uh, you can grab him after the service. Or um, we have some community leaders. Michelle is here. Jeannie's a community group leader. Grab one of them and just invite yourself to their group. That's okay, right? They can just, like, invite you. Um, and, and continue to wrestle together and discern together God's word for us. And here's the last thing. I've had enough conversations with different ones of you about sex to know that there is as many opinions about sex as there are people in this room today, and that's okay. I love that about our church. But what it also means is that sermons like this can kind of bring things up for different ones of us. Go, wow, what really? Uh, I don't. Mm. So don't just hold that in. Talk about it. And can, like, grab me. Say, hey, let's meet. I'd love to do that. Um, or in your community group. Uh, let's keep our conversations about this kind of open and transparent and healthy. But, but, am I making sense right now? Okay, good. All right, uh, that's it. So, I'd you to stand, please, and just open up your hands to receive the benediction. So now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the one who has created us in His image to experience life with God now and forever, Spirit of God, we ask that you would send us out. Uh, agents of a kind of grace that will, most of the time, seem scandalous in our world. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for making your grace too small, for making it too palatable, uh, for making it uh, too comfortable for our own hearts. Start with us, we ask. Scandalize our own hearts again today with your grace, and let us be agents of it everywhere we go this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if you have kids, go grab them. If you have to go, that's fine. Otherwise, in about... 90 seconds. We'll meet uh, right back in here uh, to talk for a few minutes together about next year's strategic plan. Go in peace.